and welcome to Pop Screen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are that corner of the Geek Show that likes to look at the good, the bad, and the bewildering of movies, either starving about or by pop stars. No, the podcast covers a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a filmmaker and a writer for geekshow.co.uk and horrified.com. I've been joined this week by... Mark Harrison, I'm a writer and occasional quiz master at Film Stories magazine, Fodseller and Yahoo. Indeed, the quizzing is going well, isn't it? It's, yeah, I would say so. Yeah, it's it's fairly weekly, that. <laughs> there's, um, yeah. there's other things to talk about with that. There's a podcast coming up soon um, that hopefully Indeed. will be up. <laughs> but for today, Bula, Graham, Bula. <laughs> uh, yeah, Bula, Mark, yes. <laughs> We we like to think of uh, ourselves at Pop Screen as a revolutionary podcast. We've never supported the status quo, and we're not about to start now. <laughs> because yes, where where did you first hear about this film, Mark? Well, um, today's film is not one. It's just sort of existed as an object of morbid fascination ever since it came out in cinemas back in <laughs> 2013, at the height of summer 2013. In fact. Mm. Um, <laughs> it, what what is it is my question and I, I brought it to you because um, <laughs> I don't think you'd heard of this before I, I suggested it for the show but no I wasn't familiar with this no so I suggested no. it to you because it sort of seems in your wheelhouse and I'd be curious throughout this episode to find out if this is the worst film you've ever covered for this or if it's just kind of about level <laughs> for, for pop star movies I... <laughs> Can I shock you? I think it's the best. I think oh. the man who felt Earth looks like dog shit compared to this. <laughs> the best one star movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is the film, Graham? <laughs> the film is Bubble Quo, which it stars Rick Parfit, Francis Rossi, and John Rhino. Edwards, who is status quo's bassist and not, as I initially assumed, one of the gladiators. I thought that too. I was looking all the way through for Ralph. <laughs> <laughs> and it stars them as they get mixed up with gangsters on a tour of Fiji. <laughs> I think it's one of those films where the story is both very simple and weirdly hard to pin down because it's built on so many assumptions about, you know, what what Fiji is for a start that, that yeah. you sometimes can't follow it. I mean, it's it starts with um, a nice... Uh, what if, you know, this was a year before um, Paul King's Paddington came out, but it sort of starts with a Paddington-style newsreel to set the scene. Uh, but it just answers the question, what if Paddington was nice and racist, like right from the get-go? <laughs> what, <if we, laughs> what if we dressed up Rick Parfitt and Francis Rossi as doing doing a bit of the old colonialism in Fiji, going there as hunters, <laughs> bothering the native people, who are all cannibals, as um, guest star villain John Lovett tells us in the narration. And uh, will this oh, ever will this ever come up again? Nope. Will <laughs> no. I mean, it's no, just it it's, it's it's just the start of a thing where you know they they've they wrote bits anything about Fiji in this they've wrote with like twelve tabs open on Wikipedia <laughs> and maybe a few other <laughs> websites as well. But it's it, one it's, of those things, isn't it? Of, I mean, it's a heck of a racket. <laughs> I don't want that cannibal strand to come back. I don't, no. <laughs> for the avoidance of doubt, I don't think the film would be better if it had a scene where Francis Rossi and Rick Parfit were stuck in a big pot going, well, that's another fine mess you've got me into. <laughs> uh, but it is a weird thing to just bring up and drop entirely. Well, there's tons of that. It, it's it's The whole first ten minutes of the film before the plot starts really shows up how plotless the entire thing is going to be, but there's at least the pretense of a plot. Like in the opening, you have that you have that newsreel style thing. Um, you have a bit where there's a pirate radio presenter doing, you know, as pirate radio stations do, saying, we're pirate radio from the beach, you know, just so you know where we are. <laughs> <laughs> if you're worried about the pirate radio thing, but, you know, excited to the status quo performing here. 
And um, there's, there's the really contrived bit where Rick Parfit appears to have died at the beginning, which is awkward now looking at it, you know, ten, almost 10 years on now. But there's, um, there's, you know, an opening skit that's more or less just a holiday video of, you know, of, of the yes. band um, fucking about, <laughs> not for the first, not for the last <laughs> time in the film, you know, where, um, where Rick Parfit jumps like 10 feet from a waterfall and um, his, his people, his crew, um, his, his manager and minder, they're played by Craig Fairbrass, as they call in the local press, saying, Rick Parfit is dead. It's like, what? <laughs> so he's, he's stood right there in the cell. Like, no, this will be great press. It's like, will it? Okay. Yeah, I mean... I've got to think it's going to hit your earnings pretty hard if people think you are dead. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so it goes from that, you know, to this pirate radio guy reporting, you know, exclusively, Rick Parfit's died. Maybe they'll need someone in the band. And it's like, okay, so... This guy wants to be in the bad. We never see him again. We never see that character again in this film. Um, we don't really see many Fijian characters full stop in this film. It's more just a, a fuck about for um, these two wandering about. It's Yeah, uh, just to go back to that opening montage, I once saw the film, I think it was Bill Paxton's first film made when he was a student, uh, called Taking Tiger Mountain, where part of it was edited when one of the directors got high on mushrooms, (laughs) threw the film clippings in the air and edited them according to where they fell. Um, And that opening montage of Bulaquo is still the most incoherent montage I've ever seen in a film. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fully just holiday videos. A lot of the film just seems like a massive um, racket. You know, once it does get into a plot, it's sort of gone, for the deer hunter, but um, it's just not very deer, is it? It's it's just so cheap. <laughs> it's more the tax break hunter, but you know, it's, but it, it's um, you know, there's just such lifeless acting, lifeless wooden acting, and that's just from the actors in the film. Honestly, I think Rick <laughs> Parfit and Francis Rossi acquit themselves quite well here because they don't have the million yard stare of professional actors going, "I'm in Bula Quo." I'm in a I'm in the status quo movie Bula Quo. <laughs> It's... Well, let's. Should we talk about some of those professional actors? Because you mentioned Craig Fairbrass and John Lovitz. I mean, yeah. Lovitz will always have a, a certain degree of my affections for, I mean, three things. The opening scene to Happiness by Todd Salons, mm. his string of incredible Simpsons guest appearances, which many critics have said were enjoyed by all. <laughs> Uh, and and the fact that he beat up Andy Dick, which I think is something that we all fantasise about doing from time to time. He sure did. Fucked around and found out, made some comments about the Phil Hartman uh, debacle. Yes. Um, but yeah, that happened. But Lovitz in this is not not awake. Lovitz is a little medicated in order to get through the film, possibly. <laughs> it's... it's uh. Yes. I mean, oh, maybe maybe he's just enjoying the whole day as much as anyone is in the film. To be fair, it's not necessarily that. That's I mean, <laughs> it's tough to know where to begin with Bulaco. As I say, it's weird that the actors are the most wooden actors in it. Um, but I would, while we're talking about the actors, I would say Craig Fairbrass does all right in this. I would say that like, yeah, this is not a canon that I massively, you know, I massively follow along. But I think yeah. that in the scheme of in the scheme of Bulacore, you know, mm. if you want if you want someone to like go to war with a local police department and um and then give a speech about Vietnam, then you get Sylvester Stallone. If you want someone to do like the balletic, you know, martial arts but with, you know, a frown with regret behind it, you get Jason Statham. If you want someone to convincingly beat a man into unconsciousness with a flip flop. You get Craig Fairbrass, <laughs> and he will sell the hell out of it. Doesn't matter. He's in Bulacore. There's a hundred percent commitment here with what he's given. Um, big shout out to Craig Fairbrass, frankly, for this film. Craig Fairbrass is someone who I'd seen. Like I was aware when I was a kid of his early TV credits in things like London's Burning. He seems to specialize in. <laughs> In straight DVD action movies with titles that make you go, that's not a word. He's appeared in Vikingdom, <laughs> not a word, and Avengement, also not a word. Uh, he got a certain degree of attention a couple of years back for starring in. Uh, did, you, did you ever see that film Muscle? 
No, but I did hear he was good in it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He he got a lot of good reviews for that, and it was not. They weren't good reviews that said, "Wow, who knew he was capable of this?" They were good reviews that said, "Oh, finally, he's got something that he can shine in." And I think when when you look at his performance in Bulaquo, you can see that because he is doing a better job maintaining his dignity yeah. than anyone else in this film. Yeah, in a film, I would say that it's it's kind of hard to be good in. Outside of exactly. in, outside of um, Lovitz and Fairbrass, though, do you know that? Um, that Laurie Aikman, who plays the intern, Matt Kennard, who plays the sort of like roving reporter, who's sort of escaped from that the ABBA movie. <laughs> um, and uh, Gene Hurd, who's also the screenwriter and the terrible journalist who's kind of chasing the, the scoop that status quo is still alive. <laughs> status quo is still scooping. Um, they're all... Um, what connects them, other than being in this film, is they're all kind. They're all family. Gene Hurd is... Laura Aikman's mother, I believe, and Matt Kennedy is married to Laura Aikman in real life. So, right. so just adding to the vibe that you're watching someone's holiday videos with this film, there's um, a lot of the cast yes. are related. <laughs> I did not know that. I did look up Laura Aikman because I, I had like a sort of tickle in the back of my brain saying, I've seen you somewhere before, I've seen you somewhere before. Hmm. And then I realised that, like me, uh, she has survived Keith Lemon, the film. Yeah, that is where I knew her from, regretfully. And that's all I want to say on Keith Lemon, the film. A worse film than this one. (laughs) It is, it is. And I I don't like admitting that I've watched it, but sometimes it's like when you're a kid and they tell you to absolutely not put your hand on that stove. Hmm. You're going to do it, right? Yeah, it was. It was one of those films I saw. That was one of those films I saw in the cinema, and then you know just had to stay all the way through it. I couldn't let it beat me. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to walk out of Keith Lemon the film. And guess what? I'm an idiot. I should have gone. But um, <laughs> but this one, this one was the first time I watched. As I say, just object of morbid fascination for me. And it, it, mm. I have to say, it was everything I expected it would be. It's just weirdly, you know, the holiday video thing. The opening just goes from Donkey Trail to Waterfalls to the Radisson Hotel. You will see the Radisson Hotel logos and all of the resorts they yes. go to will be um, will be amply advertised throughout. Um, you have a plot in the first half of the film, which while we're talking about The Simpsons, it's sort of the Pucci rules of screen time. Literally every moment that Rick and Francis are not on screen, all of the other characters are saying, where are Rick and Francis? <laughs> so, so right down, I mentioned Jean Hurd's character, the, the terrible um, news reporter. And I say it's, it's, it's fair to say she's a terrible journalist. Like the bits that pop up throughout the film, are bit, you know, they don't seem to be satirical. They seem very straightforwardly. Fiji News. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Fiji News is reporting status quo are still here. Status quo are doing this. It's like, good God, there's so little going on <laughs> in Fiji. But then also when confronted with the, the revelation that there's, there's a Russian roulette, uh, there's a gambling ring going on, like, on, like, on all of, um, legal killings and all this kind of stuff. She's like, would the world be interested after spending 45 minutes <laughs> talking about talking about an English rock band being alive or not alive? It's 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 not, I mean, it's a thing where the, the, the bar is like low for this one. It's reflected in all of the reception to it. Like nobody expected Bula Quart to be anything more than Bula Quart. It's like, ah, it's sending itself up. It's like, is it the one? It does lines like... You know, where they're talking about the band and someone says uh, they make a jack they make a gag about zombies and a local says in Fiji the undead are a serious problem and Fairbrass replies, uh, in Fiji Rick and Francis are a serious problem. It's like it's, there's no dots connected between that. I don't think yep. that I don't know if you mean that in the way Shit you mean that. Gag, not a gag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. Um the- <laughs> It's 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 also the first example I've seen in ages of an old-fashioned rock band caper comedy. I mean, oh, yeah. I don't want to mention this thing in the same breath as A Hard Day's Night, mm. but that's where the form comes from. And one of the big revelations that I got from uh, doing this podcast is that Spice World mm. killed those movies stone dead. After Spice World, no one wanted to make another one of them. Yeah. So it, it's perplexing to see this, where it's like Status Quo are far from the only band of their generation who've starred in a loosely plotted globe-trotting caper comedy. Mm. 
but they are the first to do it just after their 50th anniversary as a band. Yeah, this is the, the kind of 50th anniversary celebrations, which I suppose puts them a little bit kind of like the peak of their profile, I suppose, in the 70s and stuff. It puts it after stuff like Help, which is the thing I thought of more than Hard Day's Night. But yeah, this isn't yeah. in, you know, the sort of the, the Richard Lester directed like kind of surrealism sort of thing. It is just bits strung together. It's just, it's it's a lot of B-roll strung together by performances that frankly don't look like they were they were in Fiji at all. It's like, all right, we're on a stage in Fiji. Looks a bit like the top of the pop stage to me, that bit. I don't know though. Um, you know, it's they're, they proclaim five minutes in. We've sold out, but they're talking about a concert. It's not, not about the film. It's just... Yeah, not dignity. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. The, the plot, such as it is, we should mention, is that, because we've alluded to the Russian roulette ring that um, that John Lovitz is running, is that in, in the way of, like... Um, so do you remember, like, so the only, like, non-problematic, like, Little Britain sketch, just to look back at, is the one where it's, um, where it's Matt Lucas is the guy in the shop, like, who shares Margaret, it's Margaret, he's, like, checking the stock. Yes, yeah. And there's a thing in that where one of the sketches is a video shop, and David Walliams' character walks in and goes, I would like to watch a film where Rick Moranis and Chevy Chase are two mismatched people who witness a murder and have to go on the run. And they've just made that film. It's not. It's not even like relating back to to help or any of these pop caper films. The film they seem to have made is the film made up for that little Britain sketch. <laughs> they, they witness this Russian roulette thing going on, which, God, the way that this film seems to get what Russian roulette is in its first scene, and then never again, never. <laughs> but but you know, it's a PG certificate film. There's only so many much stuff you can do with Russian roulette. But Rick and Francis see, and I wrote this down the exact line they say as they're spying on this. This this murder, if, if you call it that, this Russian roulette game. The line they say is, "We have to do something about this." <laughs> it's like we <laughs> we status quo have to do something about this. <laughs> it's, it's like the, where law enforcement fails, status quo must step in. Yeah, so after, after they coincidentally witness this, witness this thing, they catch. The capture footage of it, but unfortunately, oh no! And this is the other line I wrote down because it's incredible. Like, unfortunately, John Lovitz also happens to be um, a human organ trafficker, <laughs> so they're trafficking yes. the organs of, of the victims of the Russian roulette game. And he has this line about two old people. He's just not quite made out their faces, but he's just seen two older men watching his his game. <laughs> he has this line: "I'm sure they have nice fresh organs." <laughs> Do they? Do you think? <laughs> I mean, you, you say rightly that there's not much you can do in a PG certificate <laughs> with this plot line, but one viable solution would be not to paint yourself in the corner where your PG certificate comedy mm. is about organ trafficking and has heavy <laughs> overtones of the deer hunter. So that's a pretty unforced error, I would say. Oh, God. It's mad. They're nominally there to. Um, they're on tour, but they're nominally there to, to shoot a video as well. Um, mm. The song in question, the soundtrack for this film, by the way, is made up of uh, nine new songs and then just re-records of um, of all the songs which are scattered throughout yeah. the film. Um, the song they're apparently there to record the video for, although they do a lot of videos for other ones, is called "Living on an Island." It's a 1979 song, which uh, which uh, Wikipedia says is the, comp- um, the composition. Uh, lyrically, the song is about band member Rick Parfitt having to take a course tax year uh, outside of the United Kingdom and the boredom and isolation he felt while living on the Isle of Jersey. And that doesn't say anything about Bulacore. Sorry, I missed your That says everything about Bulacore. <laughs> <laughs> about. <laughs> Just transparently, the words tax loophole are thrown a lot when it comes around to film production. But what else does this exist for? Like, it's not. Uh, uh, it's all. I suppose it's good natured. It's not badly made. Well, it is badly made, but you know, it's, it's, it it's pretty is, poorly yeah. edited. It's not incompetently. It is incompetently made, but it's. It's in focus, I think. It's in focus, is what I'm trying to get yeah. to. All of the, I could hear what all of the actors were saying. My favourite gaff in this is where Fairbrass dunks this goon's head in like a sink which contains no liquid whatsoever, (laughs) which I thought was great. That whole fight scene is really great. (laughs) Yeah, 
It is. It is. It's not for any of the reasons a fight scene should be great. It's it's that it's quite funny to watch him doing it. As I said, if you want him to beat a bloke in a consciousness with a flip flop, he'll do it and he'll sell it. But you watch it, yeah. it's it's like kids playing a game, like watching the other two, <laughs> watching the other two <laughs> fights, just like just clunking blokes in the head with pans, and like it's all very choreographed and it's not very mobile. And there's God, there's so much of them running from one scene to the next. To basically yes. just be loosely threatened by Lovitz's character, just keeps letting them escape. <laughs> just keeps sort of, sort of sleepwalking through threats, and then oh no, they've got away. They keep surprising me. There's one bit where they're like the, the for all this is shot in Fiji. There's one bit that looks like it could have been shot on location at Centre Parks, just in pickups, where like they, they, they have to jump a train in order to get away from the bad guys. But it's one of those like flamingo land styles, just like one of those small children. <laughs> children's traits <laughs> that they're able to catch up to and the two goons chasing like oh no that's the end of us they're on the train now <laughs> it's it's just daft it's, e- it, it, everything <laughs> in it has such a sort of first take vibe yeah but it's the first film i've watched where you get to the outtakes over the end credits and it actually <laughs> takes you about two or three scenes to realize oh it's, they're the outtakes oh it's, right, it's finished okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, i mean it's dire from a scripting point of view the dialogue is terrible that's why the actors have kind of sleep walking through it and it's almost the unvarnished well they use the word loosely unvarnished acting style of Parfait and rossi that's <laughs> like that actually works in his favor like the one the one attempt at a joke it's just hilariously spiked by the fact that they've got no comic timing. That they're really, it's in the same way as choreography. Um, Love it in one of his, you know, sleepwalking episodes. Brings in a doll with a bomb attached to it, and they yeah. look at each other. And uh, Rick says it's a bomb, and Francis says it's a doll. And they look at each other and not quite in sync at the same time. And you have to rewind it and tell what this. And they say it's a blow up doll, and that's. <laughs> Oh, but God. I laughed more at them fudging it. I laughed more at them <laughs> at them fudging the delivery than at the actual joke. There's, it's strung together. It doesn't have any of like the surrealism of help, like the sort of like this isn't like all oh, right, this is actually quite clever and you know funny. It's just rand. It's just randomness. As I say it's just holiday video. In that early bit where they're um, where they're doing the donkey trail and stuff, there's even a line that's just like. Um, all right, we have to go over here now. Oh, but it's so nice here. And it's like, I know, but we have to, they don't say we have to go be in a film, but it's, it's almost like, right, <laughs> we have to do the loosely stuff. It's like tonally, it's a nightmare. Like that train sequence ends with them getting off and uh, benevolently dishing out chubba chups to Fijian children. Like it's the end of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Two. <laughs> Just, where, where the fuck they got the chubba chups from? That they've been <laughs> carrying around with them while on the run for their lives. I don't know. That is, now that you've mentioned it, that is an ominous thing, isn't it? Because when elderly British blokes go out to Asian islands with pocketfuls of sweets, it rarely means anything good. No, but, you know, they've got plenty of Fijian extras, but none of them taking any part in the plot. I would say not since the Truman Show has Fiji been so central and yet so remote. <laughs> Do you think if we showed this film to Dave Lister, he would give up on his dream of going to Fiji? <laughs> yeah, this is with <laughs> this is this skein of characters running through popular culture, isn't there? A dream of going to Fiji. Yeah, <laughs> but they know not what we have seen. They have they know not <laughs> Bula Kwa. <laughs> The risk of running into Francis Rossi and Rick Parfit trying to act would definitely put me off any holiday location. Oh, the tone is so all over the place with the crime stuff. It's, again, as you say, it's just an unforced error. They don't need it in there, but it's just because there's this constant soundtrack, this constant backing of, of core songs. Because it's, it's not in a way of help where they sort of stop to do a performance. Mm. It's sometimes just in there as well. Like Laurie Aikman's character is called Caroline. So Caroline inevitably plays, you know, just incessantly over one um, action yes. set piece, such as it is, whether it fits the, the thing or not. But, you know, there's, there's some bits where it, it jars completely with the dark tone of the thing. So you've got um, your shite um, Fiji newswoman doing the news reports about how there's been um, an incident on a bridge, like in uh, status quo involved in a car chase. They're on the run from the police. Mm. Um the song's just tootling away underneath, so it's going, their Fijian driver was shot dead. And the soundtrack goes, Mystery Island. <laughs> 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 it's, it's just, 
Oh, it's it it's it was morbid curiosity before. Now I know I know it to be a cursed artifact, and you can't hate it. It's not. It's difficult to hate. It's it's not actually doing anyone. Any harm. It didn't make me angry. No. It's just intensely weird. I mean, you mentioned the tone, and I, I was trying to think there just aren't many films about organ trafficking. Uh, the only Neely example I can think of. Do you remember during the development of Mission Impossible 3? Yeah. David Fincher briefly circled it. Yeah. Um... And the rumour was was that his Mission Impossible 3 would have been about organ trafficking. And when he moved on, everyone was like, oh, I'm not surprised by that. That storyline sounds way too dark for a Mission Impossible film. And you think, was it because it's too dark or was it because this was his script? <laughs> yeah, Fincher, big, big stuff. I mean, from the way the film presents it, everyone wants to be a status quo kick, so maybe Fincher was there at one point. Just maybe. But here you go, lads. This is it. This is going to break. <laughs> this is going to break you out. It's... Uh... <laughs> God. I mean... I'm I'm aghast. A, a I'm agape at some of it. I've, I've watched it and I'm still not. It's... It's beyond that. It's it's getting in like nitpicky territory, but it's it left me in such a state of confusion that it would like even basic shit. Just like at one point, Rick comes out with the line about gambling, like a, a collective noun for gamblers is a murder, a murder of gamblers. I'm like, I'm not sure. Like even basic shit. It's not. It's talent or street. You get a talent of gamblers or a street gamblers. It's like where where did that come from? Like <laughs> I know this is getting nitpicking, but like this is the the micro level of how much Bulacore like perplexed me. While I was watching yes. it. That's it. I think when when you were confused about the intention behind individual lines of dialogue, yeah. it's like either I'm watching a David Lynch film or I'm watching a film that is <laughs> just so misjudged on every level. Yeah, and that is it. It is quite spectacularly ill-conceived because I'm not really the thing is I, I'm not really sure who this is for I guess it's PG mm. so you can take you can drag the family if you want to use the cinema <laughs> if you want to use the cinema as a babysitter I suppose but that's it it's, but you know they've been I mean we can get onto this when we talk about the music I suppose when we talk about status quo in, in pop culture but like it's it's a mad thing of like it's not taking itself seriously and there's plenty of reviews that I saw that are like ah it's not taking itself seriously it's you know, it's, it's not it's not funny either I'd like it to be funny with yeah. that the recurring line I've seen across like a lot of professional reviews and uh, like online reviews alike is it's not going to win any Oscars it's like right but that's not that's not the low bar for a watchable film. And like I have to I have to call this one out. This is from a professional review. Not from yeah. not this is from like from the time this came out in twenty thirteen. This is David Steedman's review in the Hollywood News. I'm calling this out mm. specifically because again, this is the only review I've seen that the only thing I've seen in the research, maybe is a gape as the film did. Is what he said, like uh, it's an antidote to, you know, superheroes and spaceships and this kind of thing. But the, the quote is it's not Schindler's list. It's like no. Nobody wants, nobody would expect it to be Schindler's List with status quo. What would that, nobody wants them handing out chubba shops in Schindler's List. It's, Foolish it's like, that's not the low bar for like an actual, to, to spend £10 on a cinema ticket. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it's that sort of thing, isn't it, that people always correctly drag Adam Sandler for. Mm. If you were going to make a film that is so transparently an excuse to take you and your mates and, as you point out, half of your mates' family yeah. out on a tropical vacation, you have to have serious goodwill with the audience. Like, even, you know... George Clooney and Brad Pitt and Matt Damon mm. in the Soderbergh Oceans films got a lot of reviews saying, oh, this is just smoke, this is just actors on a jolly. And you think if they don't have the goodwill, I'm not entirely sure Francis Rossi does. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, sure enough, um, do you want to know how much this made in its first weekend at the box office? Oh, please tell me. Um, a solid from 161 sites to £255,000. It was not. I mean, that's 
that's quite a loss, isn't it? Per what it is. I might have to. I might have got that wrong. I might have added like three zeros so that I'm going to double check that <laughs> stat. <laughs> I'm going to check that stat because even as I said it, that sounded better than it was. It's probably something like two twenty-two thousand five hundred. Well, there was a sort of cottage industry of those stories about inexplicable British films, weren't they? Of the sort of they made fifty-two pounds at the box office in their first week. Yeah. And generally, it was for films starring Danny Dyer. Um, yeah. But yeah, they, they generally made like about 100 quid in their first week, if memory serves. That was the the sort of bar that would get people writing about how badly your film had done. Yeah. Um, right, I've got it here. So this was released in the same week as uh, new releases, uh, Now You See Me, The Internship. Um, it did not place in the top ten. <laughs> it made twenty six thousand pounds <laughs> on one hundred sixty six. Okay, that's what it was. Yeah, sorry about that. I was yeah. going with that from memory. So yeah, that uh, did place outside the top ten and rapidly descended after mm. that. It was Bulaco in UK cinemas, apparently renamed uh, Guitars, Guns, and Paradise. Yes, in some places as well. With an national exclamation mark, which means this, this got screened outside of the US, <laughs> outside of the UK. Look, outside of course the home turf. Well, they're, they're, I mean, they have this almost institutional status in Britain as uh, just one of the ultimate bands who put their heads down and keep going forever. But their only top 40 hit in the US is also the only status quo song that I like, which is Pictures of Matchstick Men. Yeah, it was um, in the course of research for this. It was like, this is kind of like... This sort of stands apart as like, oh yeah, as you say, it's the only one that you like. I did find a lovely thing from, um, <laughs> lovely thing about like, so what inspired this uh, this kind of more psychedelic thing? It's like, oh, I was sitting in the car seat hiding from my wife and my mother-in-law. It's like, oh, right, there's this. this <laughs> there it is. I mean, they've been around as long as like Ken Barlow and Cream Eggs in this country. Like, you can't think of a, better, a more aptly named band. Like, yes. they, got, they got the Brit Award for extended contribution music 30 years ago. <laughs> and then they're still going like fair play to them still um still playing like i'm not in any way the, the film is baffling to me none of this is to be mean to the band necessarily it's it's i mean if you want some like hot stats they have like the most appearances on top of the pops of any band yep. they had 106 performances in 42 years get getting rolled out for um like the 25th anniversary of the 2000th episode the clip show they made the final record episode stuff like that but then they were also constantly on there with like new singles at that yeah. time as well. They've had 25 UK top 10 albums, which means over the course of like 50 years, they've been dad rock and they've been granddad rock and they've been great granddad rock. I'm not sure where we're at <laughs> now. Well, to be status quo is literally dad rock because I mainly associate them with my dad, who was absolutely just a massive, massive status quo fan. Yeah. And I don't know, I don't remember disliking them when I was young, although. Every time they broke into my consciousness since it was um it was something that eroded my patience with them. Like mm. d- are you familiar with the big reorganization of Radio One in the mid nineties? Yeah, I was reading about this in the research, yeah. Yeah. There's a great, great book by Simon Garfield who wrote Just My Type called The Nation's Favourite, which is an oral history of Radio One at that time when uh, the controller of the station, Matthew Bannister, realised that the station that had been set up as a youth-focused, pop-focused, chart-focused radio station had just stuck with the same DJs since it was founded. And, you know, some of those DJs are still around on radio stations that cater for older listeners. Hmm. Some of those DJs have died. Some of those DJs like Mike Reed performed a song called UKIP Calypso, which <laughs> is a fate worse than death. But, you know, the radio Bannister realised that Radio 1 had drifted massively from its original mission, even though it was still getting great listenership figures. And so he replaced all of the old DJs and instituted new policies that refocused the station's output on what young people were listening to. And he said, Bannister said that the thing that really helped them was that about a year into this process, 
status quo of the leagues to cover fun, fun, fun by the Beach Boys hmm. with the Beach Boys or at least that era's version of the Beach Boys on it. I think people who are familiar like me with Beach Boys history will be utterly unsurprised to realise that Michael Love has a very extended verse on this thing. And Radio 1 said, well, th- this has absolutely nothing to do with where we are but as, as a station now. And they sued the station for refusing to play their records, leading to the, the fabulous sentence in, a judge, in the judge's summing up, which was, uh, maybe Radio 1 just don't like your records. <laughs> <laughs> and Rossi is interviewed in The Nation's Favourite about this, and he says something like, oh, we could have gone to Radio 2, but there's a stigma towards Radio 2. It's not cool, and you think, you have a band who's been going f- since the 60s releasing a cover version of Fun, Fun, Fun mm. with a new verse by Michael Love on it. <laughs> and you're worried about not being cool. <laughs> I mean, it's a publicity stunt. It's pretty good, isn't it, really? I'm just going to sue the BBC. Okay, it's his name's in the paper. It's, it's, as, it's as good a publicity stunt as Rick Barfitt has died falling off a waterfall. <laughs> this will give us... <laughs> This will give us incredible press. It's um, they're just, they're just still around and just sort of omnipresent. Really, they're still kind of releasing new albums every once in a while. Parfit sadly passed away um, December twenty sixteen. Uh, subsequently replaced by Richie Malone. Uh, both of them yeah, recorded. Yeah, one of the, the one of the less storied casualties of twenty sixteen. Mm. You every now and then I will find someone who died in twenty sixteen. They were like, "Oh shit, there's Deep Cut." You know, we forgot about that one. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, it was Christmas Eve 2016, which means the next day uh, George Michael died. So George there was more Michael, of a, yeah. God. So that could, yeah. that could be... Um, they have had an album out since then that was one of their uh, biggest top 10 hits in a while. That was out in 2019. They were all set to two with that. And then the pandemic happened, which right. marked the biggest break in... It's a bit like, you know, how like Ridley Scott has kind of released a film every year or every two years since started and then there was a break because of the pandemic it's like similarly status quo did yes. uh, did not it was the longest break in them gigging um they've come back from that though and um delighted to inform you graham bookie tickets now um will be rocking all over aberdeen glasgow leeds brighton bournemouth and london in the 2022 arena tour with a very special guest shaking stevens <laughs> tickets now. This has not been paid for by court, by the way. I don't know why I'm telling you to do this. I'm just letting you know <laughs> that you too could see status quo and shaking Stevens. Maybe after the show, you'll go backstage and they'll unfortunately witness an incident. And, oh no, it's happening again. <laughs> um, the, the bizarre thing about just to go back to the end of the film for a second, um, John yeah. Lovers gets away. My my question is like so at the end of the film the the police storm in this is very anticlimactic thing where where Rick and Francis inevitably wind up having to play the game having to play a Russian roulette yes um and just pretty much go by by just shooting in the air and then shooting John Lovitz in the arse and this is the nadir of his of his wooden acting is he does not oh you shot me in the butt I can't believe you nobody shoots me in the butt he says with no emotion or pain whatsoever <laughs> but then but then gets away and like my question is like what, what, what were they planning a sequel were they gonna oh god yeah <laughs> were they like... gonna bring him back were they gonna make him do this again was it gonna be in <laughs> France was it gonna be called je ne sais quoi <laughs> quo vadis what yes. was it what were they <laughs> It's one of those tonal things again, though, isn't it? I can completely understand yeah. why a PG certificate cape comedy does not want to end with the villain's brains being blown out, but <laughs> that's why you don't make the villain an organ trafficker. You know, you've already crossed a pretty big line. It's it's not even it's not even like he should have got his brains blown out. He's not even like brought to justice despite the fact. Mm. He's just still out there to like vaguely turn up at any core show he likes and vaguely threaten them, then ineffectually leave. The, the best, the best <laughs> bit in this is when he when he goes over to uh, shite newswoman and goes, 
And goes like, uh, what about your kids? Like, I can get to your kids. You want to report the way things are, you know, he threatens her and like walks off. And then um, Matt Kennedy's character come over and goes, that was him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no shit. <laughs> but, you know, everything is, is it's entirely possible they just forgot to shoot an ending. Or they went, ah, yes. should we leave the ending? Should we go on another donkey ride? That'd be nice. <laughs> and it's to me... It's an odd artifact because I can't even. If you're not, you know, if you're not a fan, if you're a fan of them and you're just watching it, well, look, it's it's Quall and they're doing stuff. If that, if that's mm. the appeal, then that's one thing. But it's like it's a it's a shitty thing to foist on your fans, really, isn't it? You dedicated fans. Yes. It's, it's just barely a film. It's <laughs> it's barely about yeah. you. Like you just sort of there. You make some actors not do very much acting. Doing the same three chord songs I've been hearing for ages. You know, if there's that saying about country music being three chords and truth, it's just three chords of some old bullshit for like for <laughs> barely 90 minutes. It originated from a documentary which was released the year before for their actual anniversary mm. called Hello Quo, hence yeah. the title of this. I was going to watch that as research for this. Um, and then I realized it's two and a half hours long, which, I mean, I can go for an epic runtime when it's Martin Scorsese making a documentary about George Harrison, but I think status quo's oeuvre would struggle to justify that runtime. I mean, there's enough of it. There's 50 years worth I of guess. it. It could just be a straight-up Sparks Brothers style from beginning to end thing about the cultural heartbeat of this nation. Well, wait, it's not a heartbeat. You listen closely and it's just going like incessantly for half a century and probably for another half a century. Why not? Yes, perhaps. I did think of the Sparks Brothers when I saw that, but I think like Hello Quo came out 10 years ago. So back then, status quo would probably have been going for as long as Sparks do now. And the Sparks Brothers is still not two and a half hours long. <laughs> and I, I, like I say, I think there's a bit more to say about Sparks' career. It, it depends on who you ask, doesn't it, really? <laughs> but no. I guess, yeah. But no, I, I know what you mean, yeah. Oh, God, we haven't even talked about the scuba bits. I don't want to get out of this without mentioning the scuba bits. I am so impressed that Rick Parfit can ham it up underwater. Yeah, they can talk and be understood underwater. They broom, bed numbs and broomsticks the fuck out of that. <laughs> Look out, a shark. Go away. Go away. And it does. It's almost like it's some, it's almost like it's some stock footage. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to imagine that. That's how, that's how that, like, I can't imagine fans being placed by it, but I love to imagine fans watching it in a car. That's how it really happened. Yeah. <laughs> Which isn't say, I give status quo have... fans more credit than that. But then again, it's not going to win the Oscars. Oh, no, no, of course not. It, it did remind me of that moment of that bit in Tim Burton's film, Ed Wood, mm. where Ed's got a load of stock footage of like tanks and octopuses and he's just ad-libbing a story that can tie them all together. I suddenly realised that that almost certainly was a scripting process for this. No. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, there's some really weird stuff in this. I think Caroline is a weird character to me because the first half of the movie is just sort of tittering about what an uninformed millennial she is because she doesn't know status quo. Mm. And when they start playing Sweet Caroline, she's like, oh, they wrote a song for me. And Craig Fairbrass goes, that was written in the 70s, you idiot! Mm. Or something, maybe paraphrasing. Um, But there's something about Laura Aikman that is like quite, and I realise I'm saying this about someone who was in Keith Lemon the film, but this quite mature. And I think if you wanted to have like a millennial stereotype who just seemed like a ditzy bubblehead with a blue hair and a avocado toast, you could have cast someone who's good at playing that. Whereas. I don't know. I, I couldn't make out really what they were going for with the Caroline character. I, 
honest answer, I don't think they know. But you know, really, she has that. Yeah. She has that beat, doesn't she? Where it's the, there's a real point in there. Is where she has that beat where she's like, "Oh my god, I think I'm starting to like them." It's like oh. when they're playing pictures of matchstick men, which I thought was. Uh well positioned because that's the only time I started to like them as well. She's she's there for like the same thrill that old men get watching videos on YouTube of like young people listen to status quo. You know, it's like <laughs> uh, it's just an objective truth. It's just an objective yes. truth that, you know, the thing that you like is validated by, you know, if these young people were just stop trying to save their own lives and send a man who's doing Russian roulette to jail and just listen to the music. <laughs> they would see what we're on about. <laughs> and then she sort of gets kidnapped and she spends the last half of the movie as a damsel in distress, mm. which is a completely boring thing to happen, but mainly notable because I think Rick Parfit's delivery of the line if we don't do something, Caroline's going to get killed tonight. Might be the least urgent <laughs> sentence ever delivered. I mean, it's somewhere in the bottom ten just from this film. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's. I think Lovett still pips with most of the things that he says. If he kind of comes to life in like one scene where he delivers the other films on the other attempts, you can see where it, where it's coming a mile off again. Where he starts he starts randomly talking about his granddad. Playing a warletter mm. in a cinema, and now he's yes. tra- he's a trafficker because organs of all. I can't do the. I'm not doing the voice. I'm not going to try. Saying organs <laughs> have always been the family business. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> how, <laughs> how much more of this? <laughs> I, I mean, it's not this bit's in it. I've never laughed intentionally. This, this, as I said, the fight scene is good, like the kitchen fight scene, because it's the contrast of someone who's actually quite capable even with limp choreography, mm. and two blocks just playing at being action heroes, because that sequence ends with them jumping through a window for no reason. <laughs> other than, yes, a, other than a, what, what would you like to what would you like to do, lads? What would you like to do, Rick Francis, if you were in an action film? Like, what's their tick list of stuff? Like, mercifully, we don't get to do any like James Bond antics. It's like, oh, you could you can fall on this crash mat if you want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Drink again. laughs> It's one of the two quaintest stunts in film history, isn't it? There's that and the guy on fire, which strangely doesn't make an appearance in this. I thought they'd tick both the boxes, but (laughs) it's just Francis Rossi going through a plate of glass like the world's (laughs) least satisfying director's cut of Blade Runner. (laughs) Yeah, that's what it was. They just imagine all the the deer hunter Blade Runner. (laughs) It's truly the silliest smorgasbord. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Bula Quo. Bula Quo, yeah. I mean, one of its most culpable uh, crimes is that whether you want to or not, you will get the title song stuck in your head forever. <laughs> I've just separated that part of my brain out. I'm like, nope, <laughs> not doing it. Yes. Yeah, that's fair. What what a shame it is that we live in a era when lobotomies are not considered <laughs> medically valid. Quobotomy. <laughs> I'm tempted to end on that. Do you have anything that can top quobotomy? <laughs> Any other observations before we uh, Not really. Sign this, off? this was a thing that happened to me. <laughs> yeah, we've watched it. I mean, it leaves me the question that I asked you at the beginning: so is this seriously? Is this the worst film you've watched for this podcast, or is it kind of in the middle? It's not the worst film I've watched for this podcast because we've done music by Sia. Oh well, <laughs> I mean, respectfully withdraw the question. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, what, in terms of pure incompetence, the worst film we've done for this podcast is Verotica, the horror film that Glenn Danzig directed, right. which, um, if you have any fondness for bad movies, it's a magical experience. <laughs> I mean, I made the Ed Wood joke earlier, but Verotica is genuinely the film Ed Wood would make if he was alive today. I mean, part of me is asking, so I know what to avoid. <laughs> 
after <laughs> watching. I'm, I'm hoping it's. I'm all right if it's the worst film I watch if I, that I watch for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> see how, yeah. We'll see how we go though. It's not. Again, it didn't make me angry. It just left me perplexed in places. <laughs> it is weird, isn't it? Because, like, like I say, it is the kind of indulgence that bands normally get out of the way when they're in their sort of breakthrough either. Yeah. There is something so strange about waiting fifty years to do your sort of pop star cash in movie. Hmm. Yeah, something about waiting until the twenty thirteen to fourteen year. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Can't think but why. I'm glad they did. <laughs> I'm glad they did it. Hmm. Ish. <laughs> Ish. <laughs> I'm I'm glad I've seen it. It's one of them things that God, the thing I've done just scuba diving off seeing a shark. Talking, talking into our corner phone show and just singing. It's just, oh, chef's kiss. <laughs> God bless these random men. So, yes, uh, if you enjoyed what you heard, you can donate to our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show, where you'll get a monthly exclusive episode of this podcast, including that episode where me and Aidan have to sit through music, which... <laughs> um, Enjoy our suffering. Uh, you'll also get my Doctor Who reviews and tons more stuff. Uh, but until next week, uh, well, no, until next fortnight now, isn't it? Um, that's been your lot from Pop Screen. I've been Graham. I've been Mark Bula. Is it goodbye as well as Bula? <laughs>